0: Gospel chapter 12, and since it's been a while since we've been together on Thursday night, let me refresh your memory. Uh, It's the final week of Jesus' life on the earth before the cross. Sunday, he makes the triumphal entry into the city. Uh, He is rejected, though, by the chief priests and elders and so on. The next day he comes back into the temple and he cleanses it on Monday. He drives out the money changers and those that were selling the animal sacrifices because it was all corrupt. And he said, my father's house should be called a house of prayer and so on. Well, this didn't sit too well with the powers that be, namely the Sadducees, who are really the ones that controlled the temple. Um, We know about the Pharisees and scribes and we've defined these different Uh, groups and sects as we've gone along through the study. But uh, the Sadducees were the ones who really kind of held the power of the temple. Uh, And of course, it was corrupted. Uh, It was a money-making venture, unfortunately, as so many uh, ministries are today. Uh, Not really ministries at all, but just a way to uh, extort, in the name of God, money out of the people of God. And there's nothing more heinous in the eyes of God, I'm convinced, than those that would take uh, that would try to make merchandise out of those who are trying to worship God would actually try to uh, extort money from them in the name of God. So Jesus cleanses the temple, drives them all out. On the next day, Tuesday, which is really the day now we're dealing with, um, he's approached early as he comes into the temple precinct, which was a rather large area covering about 30 acres across the top of Mount Zion. And uh, they immediately hit him and said, hey, what, by what authority you do these things? And who gave you that authority? They're challenging his authority to cleanse the temple and drive out. I mean, this was a big money-making venture for the Sadducees. And they were upset that Jesus brought it to an end. And he responded by saying to them, Look, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you tell me, but what authority are the ministry of John? Uh, was it from heaven or, or not? And they talked among themselves and said, uh, Well, if we say it was, then he'll say, Why didn't we listen to John? Uh, if we say that um, it wasn't, the people will stone us because they considered John to be a great prophet. So they said, look, we, uh, we can't tell you. And Jesus said, well, then neither do I tell you, but put authority I do these things. And then he launched off in chapter 12 into a parable that dealt with really the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees. And um, uh, things had really uh, reached the boiling point. I mean, uh, it had kind of reached a simmer uh, it was heating up even as Jesus began then to move into uh, into uh, Judea and Jerusalem for the final few weeks of his life. We're at the final week now though, and things are, have really come to a, a rolling boil and are about ready to explode. And so uh, after he tells this parable against them, then they kind of launch into a spiritual tag team thing where first the Pharisees come and try to catch him with a trick question. Then it says, the Sadducees come, the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? We studied that several weeks ago. He put them down nicely, and uh, they kind of slunk away with their tails between their legs. Here comes the Sadducees now. They're going to try to entrap him with a question. Theirs was more of a doctrinal question, and they asked him you know, about a hypothetical situation that dealt with the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection. He put them down. Then then a scribe came to him and really wasn't trying to entrap him, but really had an honest question that Jesus dealt with in a very honest way. Jesus is not going to turn people away that honestly are seeking the truth. If people come only looking to argue, though, and this should be, of course, the principle for all of us as Christians, if pe- you sense that people are only coming to ask questions to trap you, to try to put down Christianity as a, just a way of kind of uh, seeing they can find something to discredit uh Christianity you don't have to give them the time of day, you know? Uh but an honest seeker, Jesus never turned away, and Jesus answered his question in a very honest way. And then it said in verse 34 after that, no one dared ask him a question. See he had pretty much put down though the Pharisees and scribes and those who tried to trap him, and then to add insult to injury, Jesus turns around and asks them a question. In verse thirty-five, then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, not still Tuesday. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly, but Matthew's Gospel says, After that they dared not ask him anything, and they just Nobody dared ask him another thing. I mean, he really puts them down here. Now you say, well, well, what's the deal? Well, first of all, the scribes taught, and the scribes uh, were the official teachers of the law. They were the ones that copied the Scriptures down, and they became the kind of recognized authorities of the Scriptures. And so they would not only be copying the Scriptures, but they would be interpreting and teaching the Scriptures. And um, they taught that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. We say the son of David, we mean the descendant of David. You say, well, where did they get that? Well, from many places, and we all know that, how the Bible talks about Messiah who would sit on the throne of David, uh, implying he would be a descendant of David. Only a son sat on his father's throne, of course. He would be a stem out of the root of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David. In other words, a descendant of Jesse and David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we'll study in a couple of Sunday nights, God gives to David this incredible promise called the Davidic Covenant, where David wanted to build God a house. Remember how that David had built himself a beautiful new cedar palace, and he's reclining in his palace one day, and he looks outside, and there's the tabernacle, God's house. But it's the tabernacle, it's the tent still. The temple hadn't been built. And David gets kind of convicted. He says, gee, I'm living in this beautiful new palace, and God's still out there living in a tent. He says to Nathan the prophet, Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. Nathan's all excited about it and says, David, go for it. But later on, of course, God sent Nathan back to David and said, David, tell David that he can't build me a house. He's been a man of war. He shed too much blood. But I'm going to let his son build me a house. But you go tell David that I'm going to build him a house. And from his descendants are going to rise up kings and one will not then fail to sit upon the throne of David forever. And so God was promising David there that from his own lineage would come the Messiah who would establish a kingdom that would never end. So many times in the Old Testament, the Bible had promised or had prophesied that Messiah would be a descendant of David. And this is what the scribes taught. And it wasn't wrong necessarily, but because David was a man, they taught that Messiah was going to be a man. In fact, that was the big problem that Jesus constantly ran into during his ministry. He claimed to be more than just a mere man. He claimed to be the Son of God, and they absolutely rejected the idea of Messiah being divine or the Son of God because he was going to be like Moses. Remember Moses said that the Lord was going to raise up a prophet like unto me? and him you will listen to. They rightly understood that to be a prophecy of Messiah. But since Moses was a man and a deliverer, well, the Messiah, they thought, was going to be a man and their ultimate deliverer of, at that time, the Roman Empire and so on. They only looked at Messiah in human terms. In fact, in John chapter 5, this is one of several places we could look at, but John chapter 5 It says here in verse 18, Therefore the Jews... uh, Let's back up, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because uh, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see, in that economy, in the Jewish mindset, the son was equal to his father. So when Jesus said that God was his father, he was, they rightly understood he was making himself equal with God. In fact, the Greek says here, he constantly made himself equal with God. This wasn't a declaration he made somewhere in a corner, or he made once or twice in some secluded area. This was a, a hallmark of his ministry that he went around claiming to be equal with God, that God was his Father. Now, uh, the Jews didn't accept that, but they knew full well what he was trying to say. There are those today that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be equal. with. He never claimed to be divine baloney. Sure, he did all the time. And the Jews were honest enough to admit that, even though they didn't accept it. They knew what he was saying, and they tried to kill him many times for saying these things. So Jesus is trying to, to really now press the point home about how little they really do know or understand about the Messiah. He said, look, David in Psalm 110 is prophesying now through the Holy Spirit right here. David said, or how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is it then... That he is his son. Now you have to understand they lived in a very patriarchal society. And in that kind of a culture, the father was the authority over the family. He was the Lord in a sense over his family. And as long as the father was alive, didn't matter if the eldest son was 90 years old, the father was still the authority figure in the family. It was proper for a son to call his dad Lord in the sense that he recognized his authority over the family as the family patriarch, but a father would never, ever, under any circumstances call his son Lord. You never did that. They knew that. You never, the son never, or the father would never call his son Lord. So the point Jesus is making is if the Messiah is going to be the son of David, how is it that David called him Lord? that blew their minds completely that they couldn't understand see even though it was in the scriptures all the time they didn't ever hit them that david was calling messiah lord how is it then that he can be a son well there is no way unless something supernatural had been interjected into the family line to make this messiah someone who was then greater than david and of course Jesus is talking about the Incarnation. He's talking about the fact that Messiah was not just going to be man. He was also going to be the Son of God. He was going to be the God-man and unique in that regard, right? And he wanted to get this across to them. These guys who were so haughty, who thought they knew so much spiritually, who search the scriptures daily, Jesus said, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me, Jesus said to the Pharisees, and yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. You're missing the whole point, guys. I like this. The common people heard him gladly. I can just imagine. You see, these guys were so haughty and proud. They walked, strutted around so haughty all the time, and they made the common people feel like such sinners in low life. But to see Jesus putting these guys down on their own level, it really did their hearts good. (laughs) Anyways, he goes on to say, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at, at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now I want to have you turn with me To Matthew chapter 23. Because Mark only records a very small portion of what Jesus Christ actually said to the Pharisees and scribes who were standing there that day. And I think it would be an important uh, little side trip to go into Matthew 23 and to see the whole thing, to see all of what Jesus was saying to these men, because he really let them have it. I talked to you about. That things that come to a boiling point, well, they really blow up here eight times Jesus Christ condemns the scribes and Pharisees by saying, "Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and don't get the impression that Jesus had lost his cool completely and was a raving maniac at this point because he wasn't. Oh he was denouncing them in no uncertain terms, and yet I believe his heart was was smote with sadness that these men were so hard-hearted that they wouldn't, after all he had said and done, still wouldn't believe. There's nothing left that God can do in a person's life after having exposed them to the truth, having shown them the miracles of God, having, having allowed them to see the works of God and hear the word of God. If a person rejects that, there's nothing left but condemnation and judgment. And that's basically what Jesus is pronouncing on these men. This is his last public sermon. This last public sermon, and you would think the last sermon would have been one last invitation to the lost, right? One last, please, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden. But that's not the case. His last sermon he saved for the scribes and Pharisees who were going to shoulder most of the judgment for this nation's behavior because they had set themselves up as the spiritual leaders of the people and yet they themselves were blind leaders of the blind. Yet claiming to know God and leading, leading people into the way of righteousness, they were leading them right down the broad way to hell. And Jesus is really coming down on them for this because obviously it was a serious, serious thing. And so let's just go through this and see what Jesus said to them. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and all his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, the implication there is nobody gave them the right to sit in Moses' seat. In fact, the Greek implies they have seated themselves in Moses' seat. This was a usurped authority. And first of all, false teachers, false leaders do not have true authority. They usurp authority, right? They take authority that God has not given to them. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They had set themselves in Moses' seat. Moses, of course, received the law from God. In fact, the Jews had a tradition that said that God gave the law to angels, who gave it to Moses, who gave it to Joshua, who gave it to the elders of Israel, who then passed it along to the prophets. And finally, the prophets gave it to the leaders of the synagogues who became the scribes. And therefore, the scribes felt and I would no doubt be that the scribes started that little tradition and rumor (laughs) that the scribes now felt that they had taken the place of Moses and as Moses had spoken to the people the words of God they were now in the place of Moses but they had usurped that position see they were setting themselves up as spiritual leaders and teachers that and God had not given them that authority in verse three he says therefore Whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now, false teachers also oftentimes teach false things, but not always. In fact, there's a lot of things that false teachers teach that come right out of the Word of God. Uh, even some of these guys that are just basically rip-off artists on television A lot of what they say comes right out of the scriptures. And like the Pharisees and scribes, what Jesus is saying, look, the word of God is still the word of God, regardless of who proclaims it. So if they tell you something from the word of God, because I'm denouncing their ministry on a personal level, because of who they are and the fact that God has really not appointed them as spiritual leaders and teachers, that doesn't mean that I'm denouncing all that they say. If they tell you something to do from the Word of God, do it. But just don't follow their example because they say one thing and do another. That's the the typical picture of a hypocrite. And that's another thing about false teachers. They're hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. You know, they don't practice what they preach. And so Jesus is going right down the line. He's denouncing these guys on every level. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. These guys had taken the law. The law consisted of over 600 different regulations and laws that God had given to the people. But the Pharisees had turned 600 laws, which were very simple, straightforward, and basic, and they had turned them into thousands and thousands of interpretations that put such heavy burdens on people the sabbath alone in the uh, talmud had page after page after page of restrictions that you could not do all god said was that the sabbath was the day that you were to do no work to spend time with god simple concept they got a hold of it and made it so burdensome that people hated when the sabbath came around a day that was intended to bring joy to the people because it took them away from the fields and the hard work that they had to endure all week long and give them some time just to rest their bodies and commune with the Lord the people began to hate because it was such a heavy burden it was so many restrictions they couldn't even enjoy it and Jesus is saying to these guys you know you lay all these heavy burdens on the people and of course when the people didn't live up to all these many restrictions that the Pharisees and the scribes had laid upon them what would the Pharisees do they would condemn them publicly ridicule them put them down make them feel even more like failures while they themselves taught all these restrictions but they didn't keep them You know, they gave the illusion that they did, but they never really did. They were hypocrites. And Jesus said, you lay these heavy burdens on people, but you yourselves are not willing to to practice what you preach. You're not willing to move them with one of your fingers. Now, in contrast to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he took burdens off of people. He said, look, come unto me, all you, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. In other words Jesus said look the Pharisees have laid all these burdens on you that you have to carry to be good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven and I'm telling you no it's not your works that do it it's your faith and that's easy isn't it it's not a big heavy trip it's just believing in me and all that I've done and all that I've said and so false teachers are they 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 don't have authority they don't have they don't have humility they don't have uh, sympathy Uh, verse 5 But all their works they do to be seen by men they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments they love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men rabbi rabbi now this is jesus is nailing these men because they're not true spiritual leaders uh there's no humility all they want is to be seen by men that was their whole deal you know All that they did was was done in a very ostentatious way that people would see them as great spiritual men, and they wanted people to kind of put them up on this pedestal. They they enjoyed the recognition. They enjoyed how people thought of them as such deeply spiritual men. Uh, Jesus talked about here, all the works they do, verse 5, to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. A phylactery was a uh, actually uh, what it was was a um it started out as a piece of leather from a clean animal dyed black and then cut into squares and sewn together to form a box it was stitched together with 12 stitches one for each of the 12 tribes of israel and a phylactery that in fact the practice started they would wear them on their foreheads strapped to their heads and strapped to their Risks because four times in the old testament in the law god talked to the people about binding the word of god the law of god as frontlets between their eyes and on their hands and god was talking symbolically he was saying the word of god should constantly dominate your thinking and of course the law of god should always motivate the actions of your life your hands the works that you do that's what god was trying to get at but so oftentimes is the case when people miss the point and they realize they, they stop relating to God through a personal relationship and it degenerates into a pure, empty, dead religious form, they will often take what God intends to be symbol, to, uh, to symbolize heart motives and actions, and they'll turn it into dead rituals. So what did they do? They made these boxes and they would actually put scriptures, bind the word of God literally on their foreheads. These head phylacteries had four compartments in them each containing a little parchment with one of these four verses. They had Exodus 13, 1 through10 on one, uh, uh, 11 through, uh, through uh, 16 on the other. They had Deuteronomy six, four through nine on another. and finally Deuteronomy 11:13 through21 on the fourth piece. And they would put these in these different compartments and literally bind the word of God on their forehead. Then they would take the one on their wrist, which was one large compartment. And they would have on a piece of parchment, each of the four verses written on the one piece of parchment, stuff that into that phylactery. And we've seen these in Israel. Those who have gone to Israel, see the Orthodox Jews, they still wear the phylacteries today. If you really wanted to look pious in public, then you'd make your phylactery really big. And uh, you see some guy with this giant box on his head, you think, whoa, man, he's really pious. It was a big show is all it was, just a big show. It's so easy to fall into rituals and think you're really doing what's right in God's eyes. And all the while, God said you're missing the point. You know, oftentimes when they got upset, they would tear their clothes, you know. And God got so sick of that practice. He said, you know, I'm so sick of you tearing your clothes. Why don't you tear your hearts? This is what I'm after. I'm not after that outward demonstration of sorrow. Hey, you want to you really mourn where it's going to mean something to me? then tear your heart. In other words, you know, get on your knees and repent. That's what I'm looking for, you know. it He said they also enlarged the borders of their garments. Back in Numbers chapter 11, I believe, possibly Leviticus 11, but in the Old Testament law, God told that the Jewish men that they were to wear tassels. Actually, it's what it's talking about. Tassels on the four corners of their robes. Blue tassels. And this would remind them every time they looked down and would see the tassels in their robes, it would remind them that they were under the law and God's people, they were to be holy and righteous and so on. It was just a little reminder that they were special. They were God's people. They were to live in a very special way in obedience to Him. But again, the Pharisees got a hold of this and they made their tassels really big, you know, and it really kind of communicated their. Or they thought their piety to the people. And it was just a big show, it was just nauseating. Uh, just empty religious forms that really didn't mean anything. Uh, today in Israel, they've carried over this tradition in the prayer shawls. If you've seen them, the Orthodox Jews wearing the prayer shawls, you'll see the tassels up and down the borders. That's, they're keeping that whole idea alive from the, from the lock, with the tassels on their prayer shawls. But Jesus said they loved the best places at the feasts. They loved to sit at the host table, you know, where the guests of honor sat. They loved that kind of stuff. They got into it, you know. The best seats in the synagogue. In the synagogue, the people would be facing, we'll say, you're facing towards me. Uh, The leaders would always sit up front here on special seats facing the congregation. And if anybody saw you sitting up there, well, they knew you were somebody important, right? And they loved that, you know, to go into the synagogues and sit in front where everyone could see them and... Uh, know how, wow, important they were and uh, so on. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Rabbi means supreme one, great one. Uh, most knowledgeable one, uh, excellency. That's what the word literally means. And these guys loved to be followed and people say, oh, my great one, my great one. You know, Rabbi, Rabbi. Excellency, most knowledgeable one. Oh, they, they fed on that. They just really they dug on that kind of stuff. It was uh, They lived for it. That's all they lived for, really. They didn't live for God. They lived for the praise of men. But verse 8, Jesus says, But you... Now he's talking to his disciples. He said, But you, do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. He was in heaven. And Jesus is not talking here biologically. He's talking here spiritually. He's not saying you can't call your father, your father... But they had a practice where they called their religious leaders father, in a sense that they had borne them spiritually. And Jesus said, that's wrong. You've got one father. He's in heaven. Don't ever call a spiritual leader father. Now, the Catholic Church and a few other organizations have to explain how they get around this verse. Seems very clear to me that Jesus condemned calling any spiritual leaders in the church father. And yet we see that practice today. But Jesus said, and the reason he didn't want that was because he didn't want us inadvertently by calling, giving people these titles, and it always happens, where we begin then to put them on pedestals, in our minds, elevating them to a place that is just above the common folk like us, right? This is one of the things that God has always hated that Jesus is coming out against here. And what I believe he also was commenting against in the book of Revelation, where he, uh, he condemned those of the Nicolaitans. He said to, uh, to the one church, this I have, this you, know, you have for you, that you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, people have tried to figure out, well, who were the Nicolaitans? Were they a, a sect? Were they a group? Well, who were they? We don't really know. There, there was no group that we, can, that we can find in history that was called the Nicolaitans. There might have been, but we haven't been able to find one. So others have proposed, well, actually what Jesus was doing was he was putting two Greek words together, nicaeo and laity. Now, laity is the word for people, And nikao means to conquer over or to lord over. And so Jesus could be saying, I hate the deeds in the church of those who lorded over my people, who put themselves as leaders, spiritual leaders, in a place of supremacy over the rest of the people, giving others the impression that they're a little closer to God than the rest of you folks. You know, I'm a a leader, so I'm a little closer to God than you. So if you want to talk to God, you better come to me because... I've got a little more pull than you do with the Lord and all. And Jesus said, I hate that kind of stuff. I died to bring you all into a relationship with my heavenly Father. Nobody needs to go is a go-between between you and God because Jesus is the only mediator. And we are all equal in God's eyes through Christ. The Pope isn't closer to God than I am, although that may shock some people. We are all equal in God's eyes. And anyone who sets themselves up in a place of supremacy in the church over the others, Jesus, I believe, is coming down on these people in no uncertain terms because he hates that. He hated it with the Pharisees. He hates it in the church of Jesus Christ today, and it still goes on. Then he said here, well, he talked about verse um, verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He was in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Uh... In saying that, you have to understand the mindset. A teacher in their mind was supreme over them. And, of course, the scribes and Pharisees had kind of helped this mentality along because they did feel they were superior over the commonplace people. But Jesus said, don't call anyone teacher in the sense that you place them in authority over your life because only God is in authority over your life. See, that's what he's coming down on here. He's saying, look, it's not wrong to, it's not wrong to recognize that there are spiritual leaders that God has put in, uh, in authority over you in the sense that they are your teachers and that you're to listen to what they have to say as long as they teach you from the Word of God and you're to respect them and so on and so forth. That's fine. That's what the Bible teaches we should do with regard to spiritual leaders. But the Bible doesn't say that these people should usurp the place of God in our lives where all of a sudden we're answering to them for everything we do and say and not to the Lord. Some time ago in the church, they were swept through a, a movement called the shepherding movement. And this was a, a heresy that basically placed pastors and all above their people to the, to the point where they actually usurped the place of God in people's lives. In other words, if you wanted to marry somebody, you had to get your pastor's permission. He was an authority over you. And it was a, a lorded over authority, dictatorship. You wanted to move you had to get your pastors okay if you want to change jobs. I mean, it was really sick. I mean, this authority, it was not the kind of authority God had ordained. It was a sick, twisted authority. And that's what Jesus is coming down on. The scribes and Pharisees had actually set themselves up as God in people's lives. Listen to what Peter said in First Peter chapter 5. He said, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. He's speaking to the leaders now. Which is among you serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, not to make money off of people, but but uh, eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say here. True spirituality, true spiritual authority, he goes on to say, is like this, verse 11. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, that's the way my people are to be in authority over the flock. Not as lords, but as examples, just like Peter said. No doubt Peter had the words of Christ in mind when he wrote that. Jesus said, look, a true spiritual leader shuns titles, titles that would try to elevate him in uh, people's eyes. And he always gives himself over to lowly tasks. He's not Uh, the kind of person that can't stoop down to minister to the lowly. And Jesus was the ultimate example of true spiritual leadership and that he constantly shunned praise from men that was only given to him to kind of build up his ego. He he always shunned that. Nicodemus came and said, oh, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. Nobody can do the things uh, that you do except God be with him. And Jesus said, "Uh, unless you're born of God, you're never even going to see the kingdom of heaven let's get right to the issue at hand Nicodemus and Jesus always did this Um, he ate with the sinners he washed the feet of the disciples he touched lepers he was always the ultimate example of servanthood and he said if you want to truly be great in the kingdom of God then you gotta be the servant of all not lords not like the Pharisees and scribes strutting around like some big important spiritual guys but lowly following my example Because if you humble yourself, I'll exalt you. If you exalt yourself, I'm going to knock you down. And then he goes on to pronounce now eight woes on the scribes and Pharisees. And let me just say this. The very first sermon that Jesus gave was what? Remember? The Sermon on the Mount. That was his very first official sermon that he gave. And remember how it opened up? With eight blessings, didn't it? Now his last sermon... Is going to consist of eight woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, I want to kind of cross it's amazing how they cross-reference each other. In fact, turn keep your finger in Matthew five. We'll kind of cross-reference these as we go. But he first of all begins by saying to in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The Greek word there is Hippocrates. It was a word used of an actor who was up on stage acting on a part. An actor in the Greek was a Hippocrates. He was a a person who was playing a part. And, the, and Jesus is using this of the Pharisees and scribes. They're just playing a part. They're not genuine. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now these guys were supposed to be spiritual leaders and it's the responsibility in the ministry of every true spiritual leader of God to lead people to God, right? To bring them into the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them that uh, not only were they not going into heaven themselves, but they were actually blocking the way and detouring people that wanted to go in was deterring them away from the kingdom of heaven. What was the first beatitude Jesus gave? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were proud in spirit, and theirs was not the kingdom of heaven. But the sad part about it was, as spiritual leaders, people gave a lot of credence to what they taught, and people followed their example, and unfortunately were following them all the way into hell. They were like spiritual pied pipers, leading people not into the kingdom, but of heaven, but in the kingdom of of hell. Verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. The scribes not only copied the Scriptures, but they also were the lawyers. Okay, remember how sometimes it'll say, and a lawyer came to Jesus and talked to Him? Well, they were a scribe or a Pharisee, sometimes both, because they were the legalists they were the lawyers of the land not only did they deal with the law of god but they also dealt with some civil laws too and one of those was the scribes would come over and they would be the ones that you would talk to about making out a will and they would oftentimes put pressure on a man as he was making out his will they would put pressure on him that if he really wanted to really wanted to make points with god you really wanted to assure An entry into the kingdom of heaven. Because they really believe that you bought your way in. They believe that your good deeds, your alms, your gifts to the poor actually bought your way into heaven. If you really want to get into heaven, man, when you die, why don't you leave all your property to the temple? Now, who had a big part in the temple? Well, the scribes and Pharisees did in a lot of ways. And the scribes oftentimes worked it out where once a man died, they worked out the will where they wound up getting much of what he was leaving to God. And so oftentimes if a man died, they'd swoop in and they'd actually take the house away from his widow. Leave the poor woman on the street. They didn't care. They were only concerned about lining their pockets. And then they would stand on the street corners and offer these big, long prayers and act so pious. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, you devour widows' houses and you stand on the street corner making these long prayers, letting people think you're so spiritual, but you're just, oh, you're the worst kind of sinners. And what did the next beatitude say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, the Pharisees took advantage of those who mourned. They actually manipulated those who mourned and stole from them. They didn't comfort the mourn, those who mourned. They added to their, their grief. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when, you, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. These guys were zealous. You can't, you cannot discount their zealousness for what they believed. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, are very zealous, aren't they? They are very sincere. They're sincerely wrong. There is a way that seems right unto a man. But in the end, thereof is the way of death. We know that. But these guys, you cannot discount the fact that these are, guys are very sincere. The problem is they're so sincere and they travel land and sea. When the Iron Curtain came down, down uh, over in the Soviet Union, not only did true Christians rush in to fill the void and to lead people to Christ, but the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and every other goofy group in the world went over there to try to make converts, proselytes to their... a proselyte is a convert to their faith. And you and I both know that when a person really feels they have found the truth... Oftentimes, they're twice the son of hell. I mean, they're, they're twice as hard to get to than a person who has never really thought about it, has never really committed to any religious, you know, situation like Christianity or whatever else. I mean, uh, it's a lot easier to win somebody to Christ who has never really made a commitment to any group or organization than it is to get a person like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who has been converted because they're twice as hard. And that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, you guys are zealous to make converts, but you're making them twice the son of hell as yourself. And the third beatitude says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When the Pharisees were trying to convert the earth, were trying to convert the earth to Judaism and to the right way, which in reality was actually the false way. And so they were doing so much more damage than any good verse 16 woe to you blind woe to you blind guides now i'm sure the common folks were sitting there and they were chuckling i mean i i could just imagine them as some of these things jesus said they had to actually i mean because you know these guys are really getting it they're really the brunt of jesus condemnation here he said woe to you blind guides which conjures up an interesting picture of a man who's claiming to be a guide leading others but groping around in the darkness himself, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, the scribes and Pharisees had established what was called binding and non binding oaths. And it was just hypocrisy. They had figured out that certain things, if you swore by certain things, it was binding. If swore by the gold of the uh, temple, it was binding. If you only swore by the temple, well, it really wasn't binding. So if you swore by the temple, you had an out. You had, a, you had a legal loophole. Now you could give your word, and if a guy wasn't sharp enough, he didn't know all these little legal technicalities, you could give your word to a guy, say, oh, I swore by the temple. And the guy thinks, well, I swore by the temple. That's, pretty out. Oh, that's good enough for me. And all the while you're thinking, <laughs> idiot. That that was a non-binding oath. you know. And and later on, he could uh, get out of it and feel justified that he had not done anything wrong. And Jesus, remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because he was saying, look, true righteousness doesn't mince words, doesn't play games with semantics. True righteousness, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you give a man your word, you should keep it. Don't play verbal games where you... Swear by the temple, knowing it's a non-binding so you can actually cheat the guy out of what you promised to do for him? And they were saying, if you swear by the altar, that's nothing. If you swear by the gift on the altar, oh, that's binding. Jesus said, you blind fools. You know, you're so, you're so convinced you're teaching people righteousness, but you yourselves are so unrighteous. And of course, the next beatitude was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. These guys weren't righteous. They didn't care really about true righteousness. All they cared about was playing games with words and giving people the illusion of righteousness, but all the while it was just their way of justifying their evil and yet making themselves feel pretty good about it. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now I'm sure that must have got a roar from the crowd. I mean, you could just you could just get the visual impact of that. Well, first let's back up. He said, you know, you're hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone in the law God had had established the fact that you were to tithe from your from the produce of your fields uh, and of your flocks but all that was marketable okay uh, your grain your oil your wine your fruits uh, you know these things that were marketable God never said anything about herbs but of course the Pharisees it took everything to an extreme and so they thought, well, we even tithe of our herb gardens, you know? And they would dump, you know, they would shake the little plants and the seeds would drop off and they would count out nine for themselves, one for God, you know, tithing to God of these little minute things that made really no difference at all. But they felt very pious and very righteous because they even tithed of these very small things. And um, yet yeah, Jesus said, but you neglect the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faith. You know, it's a very sad thing when people get into a legalistic mindset. And believe me, the Pharisees are alive and well today because there are many believers in the Church of Jesus Christ who are really, in their mindset, Pharisees. They're so busy majoring on the minors. They're so busy nitpicking, small little, unimportant, what they consider important details, but such small little things that god never really has said but they feel very committed to you know and long hair that's a sin you can't you know i heard a story about a pastor one time who had a christian bumper sticker in his car pulls into a gas station and somebody comes literally running over to him another christian first thing out of his mouth wasn't hey are you a christian too man praise the lord you know first thing out of his mouth was do you speak in tongues The guy's like what you know he's like taken back do you speak in tongues For this guy, that was the most important thing in Christianity was speaking in tongues. See how we can major in the minors? And then if people don't agree with us, all of a sudden, we divide ourselves from them. We we talk down about them. We condemn them. You know, it's so easy to major in the minors and neglect what's really important. All these Christians who are running around majoring all these little minor technicalities, nitpicking things God never said were important. Never said that people had to observe. Yet they're nitpicking on these things. What are they doing? Neglecting what's really important in God's eyes. Compassion, mercy, love, faith. I mean, you know, that's what God really... I I am totally convinced when we stand before the throne of God, so many Christians are going to be so blown away because all the things they thought God was so concerned about, they're going to find out many of those things God could care less about all the little nitpicky things that they felt so righteous because they observed and looked down at everybody else who didn't keep those little minute details, they're going to find out that what God was really looking for was love, mercy, compassion among his people. Not whether or not they speak in tongues or how long their hair is or some other goofy thing that only divides the body of Christ against itself. It's sad, very sad. He said in verse 24, "...blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel." Leviticus 11 talked about the largest unclean animal was the camel. The smallest, if you were going to put it this way, would be a gnat. Now again, the Pharisees were so worried about observing the littlest detail of the law, they would actually strain their soup through a cheesecloth if any little gnat or insect had fallen in it, or they would would strain their wine through a cheesecloth because they didn't want to ingest an unclean gnat but Jesus said, "But you don't even realize you're swallowing camels, man." And that must have got a laugh from the crowd. But the the symbolism of the the picture is very very graphic. Here they were again, majoring on the miners, picking out the gnats from their soup. And yet the really important issues, what was really unclean in God's eyes, you know, devouring widows' houses, uh, making merchandise of the people of God. What was really unclean? They were swallowing all the time. And of course, the next beatitude <laughs> says, "Blessed are those who uh, excuse me, verse uh, verse seven, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy." And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees were not merciful at all. They were always nitpicking and weren't showing true mercy. Jesus said, what's really important, the weightier issues of the law are things like mercy and faith and so on. Now, when Jesus said, these you should have done without leaving the others undone, he is not really saying that they should have. I mean, I think he's talking hes talking here about tithing in general. The law of tithing at this point was still in operation. The, the law was fading out and the new covenant was fading in, but it was a overlapping kind of a transitional thing. And at the point that Jesus was talking to these men, the New Covenant technically had not started yet. The New Covenant didn't start until the cross, really. And so he was on this side of the cross. Therefore, it's not that he's saying that today we should continue to tithe. I think tithing was under the Old Testament law. And by the way, it was more than 10%. By the time you added up all the things said to the tithe, it worked out to about 23% of all that you had. But nowhere in the New Testament does paul or peter anyone tell us that tithing is a principle or a law for today uh, in fact in second um, corinthians 8 8 and 9 6 paul basically says that they were not under any obligation to give it wasn't a law it was something that he he wanted them to do willingly for god loves a cheerful giver and that's the principle today we are we are the bond slaves of christ and if you understand everything that was involved in a bond slave when you became a bond slave you gave up everything to live for your, I mean, you became the property, the slave of another. You gave up all your rights. You gave up all your possessions. Technically, all that you have belonged to your master. And so under the Old Testament economy, 90% was theirs. 10% was God's. Under the new economy, if you're a Christian, everything is God's. And you ask God what, how much you can keep for yourself because it's all his. That's why tithing doesn't apply. It's all his as bond slaves of Christ. We're not under the law anymore. But uh, Jesus was telling these guys that were teachers of the law, yeah, it's right to teach tithing. Of course, you guys take it to an extreme, but again, you're missing the point. You know, you're teaching people to tithe these, your herb gardens, but you're missing the weight here in matters of the law. Verse 25 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence blind pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that it may uh, that the outside side of them may be clean also and the next beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god and that's very very important because that's exactly what jesus christ is telling these guys here he is saying to them you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish but inside they're as filthy and as unclean as they can be what is he saying he's saying first cleanse the inside of the cup it will basically overflow cleanse the outside also and he's just basically saying all you guys do is deal with the exterior of a person's life you cleanse the outside but you do nothing to cleanse the heart religion can't cleanse the heart there is no religion that can change a person's heart Only a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's how you become pure in heart. Our hearts are deceitful and and desperately wicked. The Bible says they're corrupt, beyond repair. God doesn't even bother to repair them. They're beyond repair. He just gives us a new one when we become Christians. He replaces, he does a heart transplant. He gives to me the heart of Christ, a new heart. And out of that new heart flow new attitudes that eventually flow over and cleanse the outside of my life and I begin to see new actions. But it has to start in the heart. And Jesus is saying to these guys, all you do is worry about the outside. It would be like eating with a, with a cup that was clean on the outside, but you're dr- drinking out of it, and it's filthy on the inside. You're becoming defiled. The outside doesn't matter. It's what's on the inside that matters. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is another illustration of what Jesus has just talked about. Again, how that these men were so focused on the outward. He likened them to whitewashed tombs. And of course, you've no doubt heard of the practice that they would do around Jerusalem, because three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles were the three main Jewish feasts of the year. And every adult male Jew within 20 miles of Jerusalem were, uh, were uh, commanded by law to attend these three main feasts of the Jewish year. But of course, Jews from all over the known world would come, and Jerusalem would grow to between two and three million during these times of the year. It was a, just a tremendous time where travelers would come, pilgrims, would come to Jerusalem from all over the known world. Jerusalem couldn't hold them all, and so the the surrounding uh, uh, environs and uh, villages would also open up their homes to these pilgrims. But because these pilgrims who were coming from all over the known world didn't know where the tombs were, well... You didn't want them to inadvertently walk across the tomb. They would be defiled. They couldn't participate in the very feast that they came to, to participate in. And so as a courtesy, even more than a courtesy, as a necessity to these pilgrims, they would whitewash the outsides of the tombs. And, of course, you could see that from quite a distance. You would know that was a tomb you would steer clear. Well, it became a graphic illustration of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because Jesus said, you guys are just like that. On the outside you appear all white and clean and righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy, uncleanness, dead men's bones. That must have really hit hard. But that's what they were like. Uh, It was all a surface, it was all a show, a facade, is what he was saying. Not only does that relate also to the beatitude we just talked about, about the pure in heart, for they shall see God, but also... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, the Pharisees were, well, religious leaders are supposed to be peacemakers. They're supposed to help people to make peace with God by introducing them to the Lord and teaching the truth. And, of course, it involves the new birth. But these guys had not made peace with God because they weren't born again inwardly. They were still full of uncleanness and all kinds of evil and sin. And therefore, how could they help anyone else really make peace with God? All they were doing was really inoculating people to true righteousness. That's the problem with religion. That's why Jesus said, uh, Remember to Laodicea? He said, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What did he mean by that? He, mean, he meant simply that it's easy to touch a person's heart who is, who is uh, cold, who is an out and out sinner, not religious at all, knows that they're a sinner. Tax collectors, harlots, these were the ones that were cold. Jesus told them the truth. They saw their need for righteousness. They knew they were sinners. Okay, no pretense. They knew. Those that are hot, of course, these are the ones that are saved, on fire for the Lord. They're no problem. It's the lukewarm that are the real problem. What does that mean? It means religious folk that go to church, think they're good people, think that they have a relationship with God, but they really don't, like the Pharisees they're so hard to get to get through to because in their minds they're righteous why because they have just enough righteous deeds to inoculate them to true righteousness so you know when you talk about true righteousness they think they're already there they don't think they need any more than what they have they're already righteous and all they the pharisees have done is to really inoculate people that they're trying that needed to know god and to be at peace with god just actually making them insensitive to the real thing. And finally, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Of course, these men couldn't deny the fact that their own fathers, and whether Jesus is talking literally or spiritually, maybe he was talking about their spiritual fathers in the sense the spiritual leaders of these other days gone by, had killed the prophets and all, and the Pharisees and scribes thought that was so terrible, you know, oh, if we had been there, we would not have done such a horrible... We, No, we could not have been a part of such an unrighteous thing that was done to these godly men. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, you're about ready to kill the Son of God. You know? You talk about how if you had been there, you would not have done the evil things your fathers did. You're about to do the most evil thing ever done. You're about to put to death the Son of God. The very one that God has sent to you after all the, the prophets were sent. See? He talks about them adorning the... Um, uh, the tombs, of course, of the prophets, which they did, making it seem like, of course, they totally denounced these horrible things that their forefathers had done. Verse 31, therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore. Indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus is here saying, well, he's saying, you know, you're following right in the footsteps of your fathers those that killed the prophets, those that were really sons of the devil. He told these guys earlier that you do the works of your father, the devil. That's exactly what they were doing. And Jesus said, you know, you're no different than they were. And he says, and I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to send you now. Of course, he's talking now from a divine standpoint. I'm going to send you more prophets and you're going to kill them, crucify them, and so on. And no doubt Jesus is talking here about he's prophesying about the fact that when the church began, of course, there were different prophets in the early church there were different apostles of course evangelists uh different messengers of god the prophets were simply spokesmen for god that's all they were and jesus said i'm going to send you more spokesmen for god who are going to be telling you the way of truth and you're going to do the same thing to them that your fathers did to those other prophets that i had sent them and of course stephen paul peter the disciples uh, Many of them were killed by the hands of the Jews. Others were turned over to the Roman government by the Jews. And this is a future prediction of what is going to happen yet. Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Abel was the first righteous man to be put to death by the unrighteous. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, was the prophet whose name is in the book of Zechariah. And it's not stated so directly in the book of Zechariah, but from what Jesus said we infer, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament put to death. And basically Jesus, in another way, he's just saying, you've killed all the prophets from A to Z. one that God has ever sent you, you've killed. From the beginning to the end, A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, no matter who God has sent, you've killed all of God's messengers. And you know what? It's not going to change. I'm going to send you even more. You're going to crucify them and kill them because you're about to kill the Son of God. And finally, verse 36 Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And that actually, even though in Mark's gospel, we're going to deal with one more thing Jesus said before we get into the uh, Olivet discourse. But this verse actually sets up the Olivet Discourse where Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him, well, what are the signs of your coming going to be in the end of the age? Because he's talked about destruction now. He's talked about how this generation has rejected him. He has come in his Father's name. They have rejected him, basically the leadership. And now this generation is going to pay the price. Uh, Remember how he talked about one day as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city laid out before him? He began to weep. Luke 19. He said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, how I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself, but you would not. Now these things are left. You know, you're blinded to these things now, and uh, your house is going to be left to you desolate, and there's going to be judgment and destruction, and all these things coming upon you." Well, he's about now to begin to launch into a discourse where he tells them what's going to happen, and of course, it has an immediate fulfillment in that in Starting in 66 A.D., the Jews revolted against Rome, and they had a belly full of Rome, and Rome had a belly full of their insurrections. And so, in 66 A.D., the last, final rebellion of the Jews against Rome began, and it culminated in 71 A.D., where Titus, the Roman general, moved into the city with 80,000 men, and completely destroyed the Jews. He slaughtered a million six hundred thousand Jews. He destroyed the temple. He leveled the thing to the ground and that was the that officially and the Jews fled and that officially ended uh the nation of Israel most of the Jews fled up to Galilee where they hung out up there but uh, the Jews were driven from their homeland where they remained out of their homeland for the next 1900 years until May 14th 1948 when they began they established themselves again as a nation tremendous story uh that uh, you should really um, read up on. It's tremendous how God caused this nation to be reborn again after 1900 years, but the judgment that that generation endured, uh, 70 AD, 70, I said 71, 70 AD, um, was it a prof- the fulfillment of the prophecy Jesus gave here. Because they had rejected him, they paid the price. And whenever men reject Jesus Christ, they will pay the price. There's nothing else but judgment. Um, So in two weeks, we'll get into uh, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, The final, it was a sermon that Jesus gave to his men. This was his final public sermon, but he gave them a private discourse, a briefing, about end times events. And because we're living in those end times, I believe, it's going to be very interesting to hear what he had to say. So we'll study that in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father. We, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we are not in darkness, that your word gives to us light. And we thank you, Lord, that you are not like the Pharisees. You are true. You are genuine. You are merciful and kind and compassionate and gracious. You don't lay heavy burdens on us, Lord. You take the burdens upon yourself and give to us an easy way in the sense that um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's easy it's easy to be saved. It's not easy to live the Christian life all the time, but you've made salvation something that's easy for us to attain. You did all the work, you paid the price. What we need to do is believe and commit our lives to you. Thank you Lord that we don't live under the great weight of condemnation that these people constantly lived under because of the false teachers that were leading them. Thank you Lord that you are our teacher and that you are the ultimate example of true spiritual leadership. Help us, Lord, to follow your example. Because if we could boil this whole final sermon down, just a few verses that really affect uh, us and really were directed to us, it would be that we are not to lord it over people, but as your people we are to be servants of all. If we humble ourselves, you'll exalt us, but if we seek to exalt ourselves, you'll humble us. And so, Lord, help us to walk in your footsteps, the path of true humility and service to others. We just thank you now, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.